I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Book AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the Long Island Bunker. You know, I often say to you that you need to take a break so that you do not have a breakdown. And with all of the compacted crises that we are dealing with at this time and making the march to midterms, there never seems like the right time to take a break. But I say that you have to make that time. And so for me, dear friends here on Woke AF, I am going to be taking a much needed vacation so that I can rest and recharge as we head into what I believe is going to be one of the craziest falls we've ever seen. I have left you with eight amazing episodes that we have recorded back in 2021 with some of the most thoughtful, engaging, and insightful commentary that looks at our politics, our spiritual nature, our emotional well-being, and a look inside, frankly, with some of the guests that we are bringing to all of you. These conversations have been heard by our amazing Patreon supporters who get video episodes every single day because of their belief and financial support of Woke AF throughout the years. And so I'm really excited to bring all of you across all the platforms that you listen to Woke AF Daily on these episodes and these interviews that I think will be enticing to all of you. They hit on all of the major topics that we consistently discuss here on Woke AF, from racism to gender inequality to police misconduct to wealth inequality, which my God, and the need and the need and the need utmost for spiritual connection and wellness practices that allow us to successfully maneuver all of the things that have been thrown at us over the past couple of years. And so 
Friends, while I will be out from the show, I will not be out of sight for the next several days. And so you can continue to follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at D2Cents, D-E-E-T-W-O-C-E-N-T-S. Of course, I will be dropping in with my two cents. And you can check me out on TikTok, where I'm sure, certain that I will drop a few videos in the next couple of days. And there you can find me at Danielle Moody underscore. I hope that you all enjoy these next fantastic episodes that we have. Do drop your thoughts in the comments section. Do hit me up in the socials. Just don't draw my attention to anything that is terrible because I'm taking a break from the news. But dear friends, I really do hope that you enjoy these next eight episodes and I will see you with brand new episodes after Labor Day. It's no secret that the news is horse pill hard to swallow. Thankfully, there's the Bituation Room podcast hosted by comedian and commentator Francesca Friorentini for a lighter take on the heavy stuff. Each week, the Bituation Room brings you progressive comedians, experts, and activists to break down the issues in a way that won't just leave you crying under a weighted blanket. Get the Bituation Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and streaming on YouTube and Twitch. There. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, hosted by Ashanti Goler, the president of Emerge. BGG is the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. Join Ashanti this season as she talks to incredible women of color who are changing the face of politics and tackling some of the most important issues facing the United States. From reproductive justice to voting rights to climate change and more. Tune in every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Folks, I am so excited to welcome to Woke AF, I believe for the first time, Maya Wiley, who is a friend of mine, and you know her as a candidate for New York City mayor. Um, Maya, New York City has been the epicenter for a lot over the past year. Um you know, at the, at the height of the pandemic. And I, I fear to say the height because we see that things are changing all around the globe and all around Europe. But I will say the height as of 2020, New York City was the epicenter for crises. Um, and a little bit before that, you decided to put your hat in the ring, uh, for mayor. I want to know before we start in pandemic talk, what had you decide after your life of living in New York City, working in New York City, working in uh, different administrations, um, decide to throw your hat in the ring, decide that now was the time that New York City was not only ready for its second, right, which is just embarrassing, its second black mayor, um, but what would be its first female mayor and first black female mayor? Well, first of all, Danielle, I have to say it's wonderful to see you. Thanks to COVID, it has been way too long, and it's a pleasure to be here at long last. Yes. Um, look, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, before COVID hit, this city already was experiencing a pandemic. Mm. It was a pandemic of an affordability crisis. It was a pandemic of systemic racism. It was a pandemic of a of, of division and spiritual exhaustion 
that then was deepened, expanded, fast-tracked when COVID struck. And I think like so many other women in general uh, and women of color, black women in particular, after watching for years, you know, of uh, 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 the need for much more transformational leadership, leadership that pulls us together, but also says we're pulling together to do things differently, you know, because it can't be that we're simply going back to the same old toolbox to fix pr problems those tools were never addressed to fix. And that when COVID hit, and when so many of our communities, Black communities, Latino, mm -hmm. Asian, remember that New York City has the largest indigenous population, Native American population, urban in the country, that it was our communities. All of us were decimated, right? And we should say that out loud because it is true. We're traumatized as a city where every aspect of our economy has been devastated as a city. But it is also true that like in every crisis, every single one, whether it was the Great Recession of 2008 or Hurricane Sandy, that we are always the communities that are hit hardest first and with the longest lasting impacts. And we are so critical to this city being what it is, being the vibrant, innovative place it is, being the exciting place it is, and that we have been at risk of losing that for a very long time. And I, just as someone who spent my entire career committed mm -hmm. to dismantling structural racism, to focusing on what pulls us out of you know the crises that are a crisis of creation, it's not necessarily mm -hmm. a natural condition. It's one we recreate and we can change. And, you know, I just said it's time. It's time for a change. And I stepped in to make it. You know, there, I, I, I love the, the, the term that you use, just a, a, a kind of spiritual um, pandemic, right? A, a kind of hopelessness, I feel, sets in in varied communities around New York City. I mean, as it is, as it has been across the country, but definitely within New York City, people look to New York, right? As, as a beacon, I think, in many ways. And yet what the COVID-19 crisis did was open our eyes in so many ways to the systemic forces that have been at play that have kept many marginalized communities down, right? And under the thumb um, uh, of egregious systems that would have them there. For me, I worked in New York City. I worked under Mayor Bloomberg um, in the in the public education system, largest in in this in the country. And, you know, what I noticed as we were going through this pandemic is just how many young people out of the 1.2 million children that are in the New York City public school system don't have access to Internet. So how were they going to be able to learn remotely when we had to make this enormous shift? When you look at New York City public schools, for instance, as just one of, uh, of the many areas that need an overhaul, what do you see as some of the first things that need to be done? Because we know, and I know this from lobbying for New York City public schools at the federal level, is that where New York City goes, the rest of the country follows. So what do you think needs need to happen after us seeing this pandemic, seeing the fault lines that have been ignored for so long need to do? Yeah. You know, this is such a, a critical question as someone who not only went to an overcrowded, underfunded black 
elementary school when I was young and saw firsthand and felt firsthand what that what that felt like, how much it felt like we didn't matter and we weren't important, how our teachers struggled. Uh, and then being a public school parent myself with kids between the two of them, spent 15 years in the public school system and I navigated everything from elementary school to middle school to high school in the public system. And it's of deep importance to me because it's fundamental to our democracy, frankly. And we have to understand our public education system as that. And New York is, it sees itself as exceptional, right? Because we're mm -hmm. a miraculous, wonderful place. We're the most diverse in the land and the center of capital, uh, the center of innovation, the center of so many things. And we're also the center of segregation. Uh, we're the center of far too few students getting the education they deserve and the vast majority being students of color. And so one of the things I see is, what happened during the pandemic was predictable, mm. was predictable. And so that should be the thing that makes us most upset, right? We knew before the pandemic that 1.8 million New Yorkers either didn't have broadband access at home or lacked a computer or a cell phone or both, right? That is its own pandemic. And as someone as a racial justice advocate who worked on digital divide issues and then went into City Hall in 2014 and with a mayor that said, it's on you, universal broadband is on you. You're the person who's worked on it before. We want communities of color to get what they deserve and plotting out a plan, including getting every single apartment in Queensbridge houses free broadband, finding mm. the money, showing the city it had the resources and working collaboratively to make that impact was so important because what it said is, we know there's a problem, but we're gonna confront it now. And there are ways for us to do it differently, be transformational. I left in 2016 and the rest of the plans for other public housing developments did not occur. And I just think about the lost opportunity there when we think about what happened when the pandemic struck. But what it also tells us is that we can, we can. It just requires leadership that keeps the eyes on that prize and keeps government working in a way that is different from the way it usually works so that our students who are in homeless shelters, A, we're moving more people into permanent housing that's safe and affordable, but B, that they have, even if they're in transitional housing or shelter, have what they need to learn. And that's something we can accomplish and that we will lay out a plan for. But I say it because I've done it. And I just, you know, getting this year back that our students have lost, recognizing that that spiritual exhaustion is yeah. now trauma is mm. now trauma and that that trauma requires trauma-informed care in our schools because that's about educational outcome. You know, if we're not treating the whole child and the whole family as a unit that has to be engaged in, in, their, in the child's education and we're not seeing nutrition and we're not seeing mental health as key parts of that, we're gonna miss the boat. And so I've also created a plan to put trauma-informed care in schools and have social workers because we have to have student support teams that support our kids through all our kids, but particularly kids that are in communities that were deeply impacted.
You know, when you talk about trauma care, I, you know, again, I, I, I go back to my days in the classroom and everything that you're saying is exactly right, is that, you know, we, we always want to focus on the ABCs, but we don't understand that in order to get there, right, a child would have needed to have a good night's sleep, would have needed to have a hot meal, would have needed to have, you know, the ability to move their bodies and get out their energy and, and absent all of that, ABCs don't come right? Absent understanding what it is that parents need, our caregivers need in order to be able to parent and care give. Um, we don't do that. I see schools as community centers, right? The center of community. And, you know, but when I look at where the investment goes in our cities, where the money goes, um, there is a blatant disparity. And so how do you think about right-sizing, Right. When we look at right sizing budgets, we see and, you know, we'll talk in a minute about our, our policing in, in New York and the criminal justice system in New York. But when we look at the budget of, let's say, the NYPD, which is in the billions of dollars, right, the six and seven billions of dollars. And we look at the largest school district in the country, if not in the world. And we don't see the, the we don't see those bees following following the dollar signs. How do you begin to right size something that seems um, like there's such an enormous gap for us to close? That is a question I have an answer to, <laughs> and, I, and I do want to focus it on policing because um, I've already said, and 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 this is as someone who has a godson. Uh, who I've been, who lives in public housing, who has been, uh, you know, who's had experiences with police officers who have cared, but has also been hit by police officers. Has also mm. is a is a child I have had to young adult now, but I've had to accompany to court on things like skateboarding, on things like being in the park after dark, things that are not things that should result in me going to court with him with my law degree. So um, number one, because that's an interrupted his educational experience. Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. That has traumatized him and, and, and he will graduate from high school, but only with a lot of support because of those experiences. So we want our kids to learn, particularly our black boys and girls who far too often are criminalized in our system or treated as problems rather than treat, being treated as people deserving of support for the problems they have mm. that we have to, that, that, that we will not be successful and we can't afford to fail our children. So it starts with taking $18 million out of the police department budget and putting it in participatory justice funds for communities that have high rates of gun violence. Because when I had a friend who lost his nephew, his nephew was shot and killed at 4.30 PM in Bed-Stuy just going to the neighborhood store. Now, what the family in its trauma and pain called for was things like trauma-informed care, was more employment opportunities for young people, was all the things that are about investing in communities and in our kids. So that participatory justice fund is one where communities can say what helps it solve its problem. So that could be after school programs, that could be additional trauma-informed care in addition to the what I'm gonna make sure goes into those schools. That could also be for more workforce development and other programs that communities want in their schools, mentorship. 
Uh, but the point is communities know what they need. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the reality is government can be a different partner by helping provide those resources that community can ad- ad- direct to problem solving. Uh, but the other thing I will say is we've already, you know, looking at it as a caring economy, right? Because our economy has been broken for so many of our communities and people. And so we are also going to reduce the incoming class sizes, cadet class sizes, uh, take advantage of the savings and corrections we're going to get by not imprisoning people for poverty uh, and, and closing Rikers, mm-hmm. uh, as well as taking some other dollars that are still on the table and child care block grants to create community drop-off centers for child care and elder care in communities that also creates care jobs that will be union jobs, they'll be good jobs, but we will also create a $5,000 a year grant program for the neediest families in order for them to care for their family members. And we're not, by the way, you don't have to be a documented immigrant to benefit from that Mm. grant because that's also important for our communities. People forget that black community has immigrants too. (laughs) And that the immigrant community of all races is also our community, our neighbors. Um, So we'll do that, but that's about investing in opportunity, investing in solutions, solving problems, and looking at our budget. And I will tell you that will also produce more public safety because so much of what we see in violence is trauma-induced, is induced because it's easier to get a gun than a job. We're going to flip that script and we're going to focus police on the job of policing, which is not mental health crisis calls. It is not running into school buildings. It is less absolutely necessary, but certainly not for student support needs. And we're going to make sure that we have counselors instead of cops in our schools and that our kids can get jobs critically important if we're really looking at what investment in our communities mean. And then the police can focus on things like keeping illegal guns out of our city and out of our communities, which is something that is absolutely important and that we want police officers to be able to focus on. You know, I think that we have over the course of decades conflated what it is that we believe that policing was supposed to be, right? And and we we know the histor the historical um, understanding and birth of policing in this country. But what we have seen is that much in the same way that I'm talking about lopsided budgets, you're talking about lopsided justice, right? Where you know your your nephew or godson can be skateboarding in a park and then end up in a court of law, and thankfully he had you, but if he hadn't, right, where would he have been? Would he been like Khalif Broder, who would have ended up in Rikers and, you know, and the key would have been thrown away, never to be heard from again. When we talk about this term of defund the police, right? And 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 of and of creating community creating investment in community. We see that there is incredible pushback from the police. We see incredible pushback from police unions. Um and and I want to know, how do you both create a, a city that is, that is equitable in terms of the fact that my tax dollars go to funding the police, just like my white neighbors tax dollars go to funding the police, except I would be fearful to call the police if I needed them because I don't want to end up as a hashtag. And so how do we look at the the readjustment in terms of the relationship that police have with the communities that they are policing 
the excess violence that we have seen over the course of decades with too many black lives lost. And then also recognizing that we are not putting money in the right place. But when we talk about defund, that spins off into something else. So how does your campaign, how would your administration deal with this, this balancing act that has been, that we've seen play out across the country? Yeah, look, I, I start with it with, from the perspective of a moral budget. <laughs> a moral budget. And a moral budget requires us, one, to look at how we build revenue effectively, but in ways that solve problems, not create them, right? So revenue generation means thinking about, as I said, you know, we're going to take $10 billion. Actually, I didn't say this part. The caring economy is one piece mm -hmm. of that, right? We're actually putting money back in people's pockets. They can care for themselves they can care for their communities. They can put money back into the economy when we help them get those jobs, uh, when we help them work because, or deal with emergencies because they have a safe place to leave family members. We also, by giving them those grants are ensuring that they can put money back into the economy. That's good for everyone. And that actually brings revenue back into the city coffers. It's also looking at it from what our resources are that we control that creates more of those opportunities. So I'm gonna spend $10 billion capital construction budget that is separate from the expense budget. We're often talking about budgeting as if we don't have two different budgets, but we do. Mm. The capital budget, that just means money we borrow to build things we need built and fix things we need fixed. And what do we need? We need affordable housing that's deeply affordable for so many of our workers who work hard but can't afford the rent. We need, uh, you know, to make sure that they're creating, like we're, we're solving the problem with NYCHA. So we'll put $2 billion into renovation and rehabilitation. As I said, my godson lives in public housing. This ain't theoretical for me. Mm -hmm. uh, people are in unsafe and unsanitary conditions and they deserve better. Uh, green, green economy, green jobs, you know, how we're thinking about building resiliency when, you know, two thirds of our people who are in flood zones are low income people of color. So these are all ways where we're fixing problems we have as a city, but we're doing it by creating 100,000 jobs. We're going to do local targeted hiring. We're going to think about local procurement, buying the things we need for those projects. We're going to be thinking about how that creates jobs for artists and creatives as well. So that while we're, while we're spending and borrowing to spend in a way that is stimulative, that we know from the Great Recession to the Great Depression has helped us come back in the past, we're also going to focus it on our, what I call communities of concern which were the communities that were worse off before COVID and were worse off during COVID and will have a long trajectory to recovery and deserve investments post COVID. And so that's really looking at our budget differently. And, uh, and we've already talked about it on the policing side. It means that when we make cuts and we will, that we're making choices that are mm -hmm. about investing in our future because that's what a moral budget is. It is investment in the kind of city I think we all want to live in. When, when I talk about it in that way, when I talk about what is just good common sense, like nobody thinks that police officer's job is responding to a mental health crisis. Everyone no. agrees that it's a mental health professional that should be responding to a mental health crisis with the ability to ask for police backup if the expert 
thinks he or she needs it, but that should be a call by a mental health expert, not by the police who don't sign up for the force to become mental health experts. That's not why they're signing up for the job. And there's so much that we can focus policing on that's appropriate and that we know our communities want police focused on. I use illegal guns because that's such an obvious example. Uh, and it's such an example that police officers also want to work on. But putting more police officers on a street corner doesn't stop the shooting. It just, no, it, moves, does not. Oh, it just moves it over a block. Why would we keep doing it that way? Yeah. You know, one of my last questions for, for you, Maya, is with regard to um, housing in New York City, which is probably – on top of policing is probably one of the toughest issues – uh, we have some of the highest rents uh, of anywhere, uh, probably outside of San Francisco, uh, that that I have ever seen. Um, but during this pandemic, we also saw a massive fleeing out of very wealthy white areas of New York City where people can leave and go to their second and, and third homes. And so we've seen in some places prices, rents drop, while in others they stay steady or they're continuing to rise, which is a product then of gentrification. We see who gets to stay and who gets pushed out. How do we battle against this? Because we know that, you know, look, I don't want anyone's life expectancy to be based on their zip code. I don't want any child's future to be based on where they are stationed, based on the tax dollars, the income do income tax that is coming in. Um, but we know that that is the reality of the, of the situation. But there are young, brilliant black and brown people that are being pushed out that New York City actually needs. And so how how do you plan to combat this? This is and this is this is a decades, decades long problem um, that hasn't been dealt with. How does your administration plan to deal with that? Yeah, this is such a it's such a critical crisis, and it was a critical crisis before COVID. To your point, Danielle, and I think that's important for us to recognize. And a big part of what was calling me in, you know, I was in Staten Island yesterday, and in and and talking to a young man. From e turned out from East Harlem, who was commuting two hours each way to a service job, a minimum wage job in Staten Island because there were no jobs in his community or closer to his community. And so if you think about that, I mean, that's, and he lived in public, he lives in public housing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's lucky to live in public housing because that's permanently affordable. The problem is it's crumbling around him, right? Mm. So one is we have to recognize public housing is one of our greatest assets in terms of permanently affordable housing. And we have to keep it public to ensure that the people who have helped build this city and power the city and who have been essential to the city can stay in the city and live in the city with dignity. Uh, the other thing we have to recognize is that we have a thousand acres, roughly a vacant land that the city owns. That's our opportunity rather than selling it off to make sure we're utilizing it for 100% permanently affordable housing to meet the needs that our folks have. It also means looking at the opportunity that is unfortunately created by shuttered hotels. There are about 200 shuttered hotels in the city, but we desperately have to recognize that homelessness is an eviction crisis. Homelessness is an affordability crisis, which is why it's an eviction crisis. And so by creating more deeply affordable housing, thinking about and supportive housing for those who are mentally ill or have substance addiction issues, 
that that's also something that creates more public safety for folks who've been afraid of um, the mental illness that we have seen on our streets. And many people are legitimately afraid of that. But that's also a humanitarian problem we can solve with a humanitarian solution that puts people in housing with support services. Those hotels represent an opportunity there, as does other vacancy. And asking for more from our private developers, you know, rather than bean counting the number of affordable units we're mm -hmm. creating, creating and asking for more deeply affordable units from the private sector is something the city can do. And I wanna say one other thing about this. We know um, that we are a city with everyone, right? Um, 800 different languages we speak, about almost 40% wow. of our residents born somewhere else in another country. Uh, our diversity is a deep part of what makes us an exciting city. And I haven't talked to anyone wealthy who does not value or agree with that, which also gives us the opportunity to, to and I've had this conversation with many folks who were able to shelter somewhere else other than New York City, and they recognize the privilege of that, particularly as they were watching the news and seeing the images. This is an opportunity for us to pull together and to say to folks with resources, we all love the city and we all have something to bring to the table. And some folks have know-how and elbow grease and just a kind of a commitment that's just raw and can innovate and get things done in community. Some of us have resources. Some of us have money. And what I've been asking folks everywhere I talk is like we've, we've all got to put on the table what we have to give. And for those with resources, we're going to ask that you give to help us recover the city in a way that holds on to exactly that because it's what's dear to all of us and what makes us New York City. And that we can't lose. Maya, the last question I have for you is, you know, folks have been so, they've been paying attention to literally what's in front of them, right, over this past year. And, and maybe now they are starting to get engaged with this race. What sets you apart um, from the rest of the field? And what do you want people to know about you? I've had the, the distinct honor and pleasure to get to know you throughout the years of being on TV with you and, and understanding your strategic and brilliant mind and analysis. But what do you want others that are just maybe just tuning in um, to know that separates you from everyone else? Well, thank you for those kind words, Danielle, and right back at you. You forgot to mention the green room conversations, which were something <laughs> bad. Yes. Uh, we often joke that MSNBC should just put a camera in the green room. They should have done uh, that. They should have done that. Uh, but look, I, I am really honored to be a top tier candidate in this race, which is no small thing because we've never elected a woman, let alone a black woman, to be mayor of New York City. And what sets me apart isn't just that. Part of it is having been the child of activists, you know, and spending a career working on exactly how we transform our city and our community so that they work for all of us. And we remain a city that is on a shining hill of opportunity in, in a pluralistic democracy, meaning one that looks like the globe, is what I have done with my whole career as a change maker 25 years before I ever went into city government, but I'm the only candidate that has both the experience of going to a segregated public school, 
of watching a neighborhood be displaced from gentrification when I was a kid uh, mm -hmm. to doing it as a civil rights lawyer, as a racial justice advocate, and then going into City Hall as the first black woman counsel to a New York City mayor to show city government exactly how to be transformational for our communities, like getting broadband into public housing, like getting the first sanctuary cities legislation passed when it was log jammed, like creating a table where we had advocates talking about how we reduce the, 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 the school to prison pipeline because government wasn't sufficiently listening as it was thinking about its memorandum of understanding with the police department so that we were starting to get those numbers down and stop mm -hmm. seeing our kids as problems. But it's that kind of approach that's also about listening and learning. Because I am a candidate in this race that says very explicitly that I don't have all the answers. And that's not the point. Anyone in a historic crisis, and our crisis has been it's historic for generations, mm -hmm. but particularly at a time like COVID, that says they have all the answers is not telling the truth. And I will never lie to the people of the city of New York, nor to anyone, and I will always be Maya Wiley. And that's the person that's been a change maker outside of government and in, but in partnership with communities. And that's what sets me apart. Well, I am so excited about your candidacy. I think that the city is ready um, for a revolutionary such as yourself. And I'm just so grateful and appreciative for you taking the time to join us on Woke AF today. Well, and Danielle, I'm so appreciative for your voice, your intellect, the way you cut through things, because as you know, we only get through this because we ha do it from many different perches and you have had a powerful one in them. I'm proud to be able to call you my friend. Thank you. As always, dear friends, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. See you after Labor Day. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.